United Lutheran Seminary presents the Seminary Explores podcast, conversations on faith, art, people, politics, theology, life, and more, with voices from around the corner and around the globe. A pope resigned nine years ago in 2013. What have we learned since then? Hello, I'm Jerry Christensen, out of uh, retirement briefly, to welcome a friend and scholar, Dr. Christopher Bolito, who is professor of history at Kane University in Union, New Jersey, the author of 101 Questions and Answers on the Pope and the Papacy, as well as a book on ageless wisdom, uh, lifetime lessons from the Bible, and a future lecture at at the Vatican on this very subject. Um, Christopher, um, uh, we've, we've, maybe, I hope, we've learned some things in these last nine years. Well, it's always um, good to be with you and the seminary community, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Many years ago, a, uh, when I was doing a little work in high school and community theater, a director told me that if you wanted to learn how to do good musical theater, watch bad musical theater. <laughs> and that's pretty much the post-papacy of Benedict, in that Really, everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong, and we have, and I, you know, and I say that dispassionately, objectively, um, and so we have a good model for the next post-papacy, and those protocols are not written down, and they should be written down, as to what a former pope should wear, what he should be called, and what his relationship should be to the sitting pope. What were some of those quote-unquote mistakes. Let's start wherever you want to start with any one of those categories. Well, I think we'll start with the most obvious, which is that it's very confusing. In the Catholic Church, we only have one pope at a time, and it's very confusing when you have two men dressed in white. And Benedict, when he announced his retirement in February 11th of 2013, which took effect on the 28th of that month, said during that period of time, that he was going to continue to wear white because they were the only clothes available to him in the Vatican, which, of course, made everybody shake their heads. It's not a statement (laughs) that makes any sense. Um, Technically, he doesn't wear a little cape around his shoulders that the Pope wears, but, you know, nobody really cares about that. So it would be better, uh, theologically, of course, according to the Sacrament of Orders, once a man is ordained a bishop, he never ceases to be a bishop. So... He should be wearing a simple bishop's robes, um, which is a black robe piped, um, piped in purple yeah. with a sash, or what some people call a belly belt, um, <laughs> and, uh, which would be in purple and a purple zucchetta. Perhaps maybe he would wear a white zucchetta as a little, uh, that's the little beanie on his head, yes. um, as a kind of a deference. Um, so that's the first question. The second question is, what is he called? When a man is elected pope, he's asked two questions. One is, do you accept election? And the second is, by what name will you be called? And the tradition is that he changes his name. Well, my contention is that if a man is no longer pope, then in this case, he's no longer Benedict. Mm. And so he should not be called Pope Emeritus or Bishop of Rome Emeritus Benedict but should go back to his own name. And, and in, in that case, what you might do is go back to his given name, but instead of saying Bishop Ratzinger, you might say Bishop Joseph 
or to use his German Josef, mm-hmm. um, to keep that kind of first name style. And so those, I think, would be the most obvious. The, the Pope is Pope by dint of being Bishop of Rome. And in the Catholic tradition, and I believe in other traditions, when a bishop retires, he takes the title emeritus. So that's, that's not an, invoke, uh, uh, an innovation. And of course, Benedict Joseph Ratzinger was a professor his whole life, even when as functioning as cardinal, even as functioning as pope. He was a professor pope. And so the title emeritus is a very natural one to him. But I also think it would be less confusing if we called him Bishop of Rome. So for my money, we would have a man dressed in white, perhaps wearing a white zucchetta, named Bishop Yosef, Bishop of Rome Emeritus. Uh, the, the 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 general trend of what you're talking about is that um, uh, the, so far the styles have caused some confusion and uh, perhaps also some difficulties for the current Pope uh, Francis the first. Yes, I think that once this story is fully told, that is, once um, the the um, I'm going to say Pope Emeritus because that's the phrase that he uses, yes. even though. I don't think we should be using that phrase. Um, Once he passes away, and perhaps once Francis passes away, and it's quite likely that Francis would retire, but not until um, Joseph Ratzinger, the former Benedict XVI, Mm -hmm. um, has passed away, that that we would really need to kind of sit down and have protocols and lay this out. My own sense, and I have no knowledge of this, but my own sense, because Francis speaks of Benedict with such devotion and such respect, he calls him my uncle, my dear uncle, my grandfather who hmm. watches my back, who prays for me. Hmm. I would imagine that they probably did connect on a fair number of occasions. You can imagine how helpful it would be for a sitting pope to have conversations with a prior pope. Now, in the United States or in parliamentary governments, you know, a former president, a former prime minister is quite a common thing. And you can imagine somebody picking up the phone to somebody who's held the office and said, okay, what do you think I should do here? You know, let me use you as a sounding board. You've sat in the chair. That's not true with the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, one remembers um, a little bit about the, about the, about the movie. I didn't, I didn't promise you we'd talk about that, but suddenly it comes to mind with uh, Anthony Hopkins. Was there something to that? I mean, it makes a great drama, even if there's not much uh, rooted in history. Uh, do you have some comment on that film? Well, I did watch it, and and if the director was smart, he just put the camera in front of two superior actors. They were actors, yes, wonderful performances. Um, And and I am not happy with the title, The Two Popes. It's a very sloppy use of the phrase, and it's confusing people. That said, whoever wrote the script looked closely at the writings of Ratzinger and Bergoglio, Francis and Benedict, Mm -hmm. because the writing very much reflects, not verbatim, but it does reflect kind of there. their twin approaches, which are probably much more complementary than they are confrontational. Part of the problem is the people who don't like Francis have really used Mm, um, mm -hmm. Benedict. But I think that this is more true, and I will even go so far as to wonder whether we have not had occasions of elder abuse. Um, For instance, there was a letter that was put out in April of 2019. Francis had a worldwide meeting censored in Rome on the clergy sex abuse scandal, um, the big news to come out of that was to say that we really need to have protocols in place to investigate and punish 
bishops who moved the priest pedophiles around and not simply yes. penalties against the priest pedophiles themselves. And a letter came out shortly thereafter under the name of Benedict that seemed to undercut the consequences um, of that meeting. Yeah. Now, if you read that letter, it does not sound like Ratzinger. Ratzinger is a very, very systematic, even stylistic writer. And it reads like table talk. It reads like someone cobbles together the musings mm -hmm. of Benedict and with due respect, perhaps the musings of a man who is not at his intellectual best at the age of 90, that would have been 93 at the time. And we have many sharp 93-year-olds. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's the kind of thing. You know, another was, was a book that Ignatius Press put out yeah. um, uh, on priesthood and laity. And the title of that, excuse me, the uh, byline of that book said Benedict Sixteenth and Robert Cardinal Seurat. Well, um, there's the paperwork doesn't say that Benedict approved the use of his name. In fact, he asked the publisher to take his name off the book and as a co-author, and the publisher in an act that, that I think, as somebody who works in publishing, but also just as someone who works with bylines, in an act of tremendous disrespect, disregarded that request. And so, you know, now what you're doing is you're putting out a book that says Benedict XVI that seems to be in opposition to some of the thoughts of the sitting pope. That's quite confusing to people. Is that Benedict's fault? Not necessarily. It's the people around Benedict yes. who may be using him as a rallying point. And uh, the, the Catholic Church, no, no different from other denominations, except that it's much, much bigger than individual denominations, is not... Uh, uniform at all. Many nations, many peoples, many different opinions, and so one gets to um, see once in a while some political maneuvering, in this case in the use of uh, the former pope against what apparently against the, uh, the present pope. Right, and, and you have a situation now where you have a present pope who operates according to a Greek principle called um, parousia, not um, the parousia, meaning the second coming of Christ, but it, transliterated from Greek, P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A, -R -R -E which means let it rip. He believes that right. everyone should right. say everything that they believe as long as they do so respectfully and backing it up <clears throat> with theological and historical mm -hmm. and philosophical, you know, good groundings. Because as a Jesuit, you know, that's how the Jesuits operate. Yeah. They throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. Right. And so... He, Francis, is, is, the irony is that the people who are criticizing Francis are enjoying an amnesty that was denied to critics of John Paul II and yes. Benedict XVI mm -hmm. um, during, during their papacies. Um, and so it, it's a very, very interesting um, uh, dynamic, and I am not sure that everyone who is interested in that dynamic has the... Um, has the best interests of Benedict in mind. We're actually talking about the, the, the present and the future of the Roman Catholic Church throughout the world, but are doing so by focusing on a particular issue, a former pope and a current pope, and what, over the nine years of this, uh, this phenomenon, 
we have learned, and our guest is Dr. Uh, Professor uh, Christopher Bolito of Kane University of New Jersey, uh, a very distinguished author these days. And I've got to say, Chris, uh, I now uh, want to recognize you as one of the leading, if not the leading spokesman for interpreting Catholic uh, affairs to the well, media. That's a, little, that's a little much there, Jerry. No, uh, I'm laying I just it do on. My best. You are still in the publishing business, Chris, and I'll be needing your help any t- <laughs> at any time. <laughs> but it is true that we'll often see your name or your presence in TV or on, on the radio uh, commenting on the Catholic Church. Um, th- all right, it's time for a couple of historians to say, why is this so unique? Haven't we had this happen before in history that two popes, quote unquote, well, a pope and a former pope have existed at the same time? Right. Well, I'll tell you a story, and that is uh, the morning that this happened, <clears throat> I turned on my cell phone. This would have been February 11th, 2013, and a friend texted me, the Pope just messed up your day, and I <laughs> thought he had died. Uh-huh. And I woke up my wife, because I wake up a little bit early, and um, kind of my job to get to get our daughter on the school bus, and I said to my wife, you know, you, you have to take care of Grace, our uh, the Pope just resigned, and she looked up and said, can he do that? Uh, <laughs> and go. I said, he just did. Mm-hmm. Um, so most people incorrectly believe that the last Pope to resign was Celestine V in 1294. There have been a handful of Popes who resigned in history. The first was a fellow named Pontian in the year 235. This is when Christianity is still outlawed in the Roman Empire, and he was arrested. It was going to be sent to Sardinia, Um, to a prison that was known to be so brutal that he likely would not have returned, and he was afraid that news of his death would not reach the community in Rome. So he resigned so that um, there would be a successor um, Mm -hmm. in in place. But the most spectacular one is Celestine V. Uh, After a a long period when no one could decide who the right pope was, someone decided, well, let's have a holy man. And they picked a hermit. And that just didn't work. And so after six months in Rome, not even six months in Rome, he realized that this was just not working, and so he resigns. And people think that he's the last pope to resign because Dante, he caught Dante's eye, and Dante thought that what he did was terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Dante in the Inferno uh, put him at the spot outside of the door of hell, the threshold, reserved for people who have done nothing in their lives. Mm but the last pope to have resigned was a pope by the name of Gregory the Twelfth, and this is really the worst period in the history of the Church, as far as I'm concerned, a period from 1378 to 1417, when you had two popes and then, in fact, three popes, which really means three papacies, a pope surrounded by cardinals, surrounded by other um, followers. And um, in order to work that out, a church council at a place called Constance was called, and Gregory the Twelfth, the Roman pope, who probably had the best claim, um, a man who was about 82 at the time, uh, resigned for the good of the church. And he became a cardinal and was quite revered. Um, he, he lived on another few years and was uh, quite a revered man for kind of have fallen, you know, falling on his sword metaphorically for the, for the good of the church. So it had been 600 years since this kind of thing had happened. The, the, um, the future then, from what you've said so far, kind of asks for, not de- if not demands, some kind of protocol be written. Uh, what would you put in that if you had something to say about it? Well, I think we need to pull together women and men of um, uh, various 
uh, expertise. This would be lawyers, canon lawyers. Um, this would be uh, theologians and uh, church historians primarily. And uh, if, if I were writing that document, I would say that we need to talk about what the Pope wears, what the Pope's title is, mm-hmm. by what name the Pope will be called. Um, I believe that the Pope should stop publishing and giving interviews. This is something that I would lay um, at, at Benedict XVI's uh, doorway. He said yeah. that, you know, I'm going to remain hidden from the, public, from the public, and in fact, he did not do that. I don't think that that's very helpful. So any communication from the former pope must go through the um, current pope or the the successor pope's um, office. And at the same time, it is the right time to have a discussion about the incapacity of a pope. People are very surprised. There's no vice pope, right? So if the president of the United States uh, dies or is in a persistent vegetative state, we have, via the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, we have a protocol by which um, the cabinet can make that declaration of incompetence and then put the vice president, the vice president would take the oath of office. There is no such thing. So that if, if a pope uh, was, was injured, God forbid, took a bullet to the head but was not killed and fell into a persistent vegetative state, we're in totally uncharted territory. Yes. Um, it, we we believe, but we don't have the piece of paper that Pope Pius XII, who was Pope in Rome during the Nazi occupation, had a document that said, um, if they capture me, they won't get Pius XII, they'll just get Cardinal Pacelli. His name was Eugene Pacelli. Right. Um, but, you know, even if you predate a document in the event that such and such happens, and we know that Paul VI, John Paul II, and Benedict all wrote that document, Canon lawyers are wondering at what who decides that that document is operative, right? Mm-hmm. Are are you of sound mind and body when you wrote it? Are you of sound mind and body when it needs to be invoked? Who invokes it? Does the Pope have a healthcare proxy? Does the Pope have a do not resuscitate order? So it's the right time to raise all of these questions and put them into canon law. I, in the last couple of minutes, Chris, um, the, the universal question. Um, whatever you'd like to say about this. How does this fit into your feelings about the current and future, <laughs> small question, Chris, the, the current and future status of the Roman Catholic Church? It's of great interest to all of us, whether we're Catholics or even Christians or non-believers. W- w- what's your feeling about the, uh, the immediate and the distant future of the Church? Well, I say this as both a Church historian and as a practicing Catholic, is that it's a glorious institution full of glorious people and glorious mistakes because it's full of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, no one does pomp and circumstance like the Catholics. I really think that that question will be answered over the next few years because Pope Francis has called a synod, which is a, something that happens fairly frequently since 1967, a synod of bishops. But this is a synod of the entire church that has no agenda. So typically what a pope calls a synod, he says, let's talk about the church in the Amazon, or let's talk about teaching on the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is a synod on synods, a synod on, I just did this in my own parish last evening. We have small groups, and the pope is asking, what do the people of God care about? What do the people of God want to talk about? And how will this all come together? And that process is occurring now throughout the world, 
in every parish and therefore rising up to the diocese and then to region and then to national gatherings, all <laughs> funneling into Rome for October of 2023. So the agenda is being written now by people who are far more intelligent than I am. <laughs> but it's a wonderful way of proceeding because the Pope has not said, I want you to talk about X. Mm-hmm. He said, I want to know what you want to talk about. Yeah. It's that parousia again. Um, why not call it a council, Chris? Why, uh, you know, like John the Twenty Third, the Vatican II. Well, um, I don't. I hope we don't have a Vatican III. It, 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 the historian in me says that it takes about fifty or a hundred years for us to figure out what a council, what happens at a council, and how it's going to play out. Right. And we're just about now figuring Vatican II out. Yep. And so, calling an ecumenical council, this may lead to an ecumenical council oh. ten years down the road, yeah. um, ten or twenty years down the road. But um, I think we need to do this kind of listening session first before we. Um, that might be the next natural step, but we have to do this listening first. What do you expect to come out of it? Might this? Uh, it, it's not likely we'll get something on retirement of popes this early. We'll have to wait, as you said, until later. But what do you think might come out of this synod? You know, I don't know. I'm an historian, not a prophet, and I think I'm going to let the Holy Spirit <laughs> write that chapter. So okay. <laughs> she knows what she's doing, but um, I'm very much interested in what the younger generation um, wants to talk about. That, that you know, when no. when we gather all of these documents together and they're uh, metaphorically put into one big binder, I'm going to turn to that chapter first. Our guest today, Christopher Bolito, is professor at Kane University in New Jersey the author of 101 Questions and Answers on the Pope and the Papacy, and Ageless Wisdom, Lifetime Lessons from the Bible, as well as a foremost interpreter of Catholicism to the media today, and I'm glad to say also a very good friend. I'm Jerry Christensen. You've been listening to the Seminary Explorers. Thanks for joining us, and have a very good day. You have been listening to The Seminary Explores, a production of United Lutheran Seminary with campuses in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We invite you to visit our website at unitedlutheranseminary.edu. All opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of United Lutheran Seminary or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America.